0: There are many different ways you can tell the human story, different images that you could draw upon to describe our lineage as human beings, different motifs or themes to explain how we got to this point in human history. In his very, very thick book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Yuval Harari, who is not a follower of Jesus, attempts to trace the human story using various themes, themes like agriculture, religion, capitalism, science, art, industry. But after describing the progression of humanity right up until modern day, Harari ends his book in an incredibly sad and haunting way. After 414 pages that, in total transparency, I mostly skimmed on a flight to Texas last year, Harari acknowledges that he's not so sure we are better off now than when we began as the human race." After 414 pages of describing the progress and the advancement in humanity, he closes out his entire book with this paragraph. Unfortunately, the sapiens regime on earth has so far produced little we can be proud of. We have mastered our surroundings, increased food production, built cities, established empires, but did we decrease the amount of suffering in the world? Moreover, despite the astonishing things that humans are capable of doing, we remain unsure of our goals and we seem to be as discontented as ever. We have advanced from canoes to steamships to space shuttles, but nobody knows where we're going. We are more powerful than ever before, but we have very little idea of what to do with that power. Worse still, humans seem to be more irresponsible than ever. Self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company. We are accountable to no one. We are constantly wreaking havoc on our fellow animals and on the surrounding ecosystem, seeking little more than our own comfort and amusement, yet never finding satisfaction. And then listen to this. This is his last sentence in his entire book. He says, is there anything more dangerous than dissatisfied and irresponsible gods who don't know what they want? Now, I obviously don't agree with everything Harari writes, but I find his bleak summary of human history to be both fascinating and very, very sad. I mean, worst case scenario, he's totally right, and this is a really depressing book. Best case scenario, his worldview is entirely off, and he is missing a foundational part of the human story. I would argue that the latter is true, that Harari is missing a foundational part of the human story. It may not surprise you, but the Bible tells a very different story of humanity. And much like Harari, it does so by using various images or themes or motifs, like family or wind or water or light or gardens or temples. But today I want to explain to you a biblical story of humanity using the imagery of a river, which is an image we see from Genesis to Revelation in the Bible. As we continue our series through John, we've made it to John chapter 7, verse 37, and we find ourselves back at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which we talked about at length six weeks ago. Jesus is still at this massive Jewish feast, and it's the final day, the day they called the great day of the feast, and he does something that is jaw-dropping and absolutely beautiful. He taps into this imagery or this motif of a river, and he makes an astonishing claim that stands to this day as an invitation to you and an invitation to me to believe and to step into a better story of humanity. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We will make it to John chapter 7 eventually. Normally, we would start in the John text, but in order to understand what Jesus is doing here, we need to go way back in the story to Genesis chapter 2. So if you don't have your Bible, these words will be on the screen. We're going to look at a couple of Old Testament passages Genesis chapter two, verse seven says this. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And that directional language in the east is really important for where we're headed today. So just tuck it away for later. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree language is also very important. Tuck it away for later. Look at this in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So just as a summary, there is one river, one fountainhead of water that flows out of Eden and branches into four separate rivers that flow beyond the garden into what scholars say, the four corners of the earth with God's goodness and his provision for his creation. Now, there is all sorts of debate out there among scholars about what these four rivers are referring to. There is almost unanimous scholarly opinion about the first two rivers, the Euphrates and the Tigris, but almost no one can agree on the other two, the Pishon and the Gihon. Now, the reason why this is so important, the reason scholars are trying to figure out where these four rivers are today because the theory goes like this. If we can find those four rivers and follow them to where they converge, then we have found the Garden of Eden. And so people are still looking for the Garden of Eden to this day. There was actually a pastor named L.V. Calloway back in the 1970s who believed that he had unlocked the biblical code and discovered the Garden of Eden. And in a stunning turn of events, the Garden of Eden was actually the town that he was pastoring in in the panhandle of Florida. (laughs) Eden, apparently, was just outside of Tallahassee, Florida, on the banks of the Apalachicola River. And in the 70s, it became quite a tourist attraction. Here's a picture I found while researching this discovery. (laughs) Now, he had all these reasons for why this was, in fact, the Garden of Eden. It's actually somewhat compelling. There were all types of trees that grew there, the beauty of the area. But the biggest reason was because the Apalachicola River eventually does splinter into four different rivers right at the Florida-Georgia line. And he was convinced that the Pishon River was actually what is now Fish Pond Creek, the Euphrates is what is now Spring Creek, the Gihon was actually the Flint River, but you guys, my favorite was that he was convinced that the Tigris was actually the Chattahoochee River, which brings all new meaning to that Alan Jackson song, <laughs> Way Down Yonder on the Chattahoochee. Callaway was so convinced, so convinced that he wrote a book about it called In the Beginning, and in that book he said this, this four-headed river system proves beyond all doubt that the Bible account is true, and that the Garden of Eden was in the Apalachicola Valley of West Florida. Now, for those of you who are curious, perhaps wondering if this is true, maybe you're already checking flights to Tallahassee, I can assure you I have spent many, many days in the panhandle of Florida, and there is nothing Eden-like about that place, (laughs) so I'm not sure this is right. But here's the point. I went down a deep rabbit hole on this this week. Uh, Don't miss the imagery, though. Uh, Eden is a garden with a river, and it's a river that is teeming with life and beauty and goodness, and this river is flowing out into the world. Now, turn to your right in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel 47, this prophet sees a beautiful vision, and I just want to read the vision to you. It's a lot of text, and I want you to just listen to what the prophet sees. I want you to try your best to tune out distractions and place yourself in the moment. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Maybe if you're a visual learner, you can read along with me, whatever you need to do to immerse yourself in this vision. This is what the prophet sees. Verse one, the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out of, through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through the water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to my waist." He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish, because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From Engedi to Eneglium, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Can you see this vision? A small trickling of water runs out of the temple and heads which direction? East, the same direction as the Garden of Eden. This small trickle eventually becomes a river, a river that is rushing and wild, a river that no one could cross. And this river, it flows into the Dead Sea, a body of water that does not and cannot sustain life. But yet when this living water hits the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea becomes the sea of life. So much so that there are fruit trees on the banks of this sea and fish fill the waters. So much so that fishermen can just stand on the banks and just scoop fish out of the water with a net. And it's this river that Ezekiel is invited to wade into. First, ankle deep and then knee deep, and eventually he's swimming in it. But remember, at this point, it's still a vision. It's not reality, at least not yet. And that brings us to John chapter seven. John chapter seven, we'll pick it up in verse 37. It says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now stop there. Remember, Jesus is celebrating the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles with the rest of the Jewish people. And this feast includes several different rituals like sleeping in makeshift tents and the one we'll talk about today, the water ritual. The water ritual went like this. On the final day of the feast, the the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam and fill a golden pitcher with water. Everyone would then make a processional and follow him back up to the temple. As they walked through the water gate on the south side of the inner court, someone would blow a trumpet three times. The priest would then walk around the altar carrying this pitcher of water as all the men of Israel sang the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to 118 in our Bibles. When these men would reach the crescendo of Psalm 118, every Jewish man in attendance would wave a palm branch in one hand, hold a piece of fruit up in the other and shout, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. The high priest then poured the water out before the Lord as a sacrifice. Some scholars have suggested that they would do this seven times on the final day. So picture the scene. The priest pours out this water, water running down the steps of the temple east, mimicking the vision from Ezekiel. And all the people of God gather together with hope and anticipation that someday, someday, if they are lucky enough, someday in their lifetime, this prophecy of Ezekiel might come true. They're reenacting this vision. And it's into this moment that Jesus stands up and he cries out, middle of verse 37, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wait, rivers of living water? Yes, rivers of living water. Does it sound familiar to you? And then John does something that gospel writers rarely do. He adds a little clarifying line in verse 39, as if to say to us, the reader, thousands of years later, I really want to make sure you understand what I'm writing about here. He says this, Now, this he, Jesus, said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, what John says here is it hasn't happened yet, but someday in the near future, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, these rivers of living water will flow to you and then through you into the world. That's the point. That's what's happening here in John 7. Now, we will stop here for this week. And I want to ask the question that we ask every week, the question you should ask every time you study your Bible. So what? What does this image of a river in Genesis, this vision given to Ezekiel, and an odd water ritual at a temple 2,000 years ago have to do with us? In other words, what's the point? What's the point for you today? In this passage, we see three implicit invitations. Three invitations that, if accepted, would completely change your life. The first invitation is this come and drink. Come and drink. Those are the exact words of Jesus in this passage. If anyone thirsts, he says, let him come and drink. And the only requirement for those invited to drink from the water of life is this are you thirsty? That's the only requirement. There are no other requirements to come to drink from the living water. Income doesn't matter. Education doesn't matter. Your ability to pass a background check does not matter. The only requirement is, are you thirsty? Not, are you worthy? Not, can you behave? Not, do you understand every theological issue? But are you thirsty? And this is not the first time, even in John's gospel, where Jesus uses this language. If you remember back in John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman by a well. A woman who was by all accounts not someone he should have stopped to talk to. If you know the story, you know that this woman was a social, moral, and racial outcast. And Jesus, doing what Jesus does, breaks every barrier to reach her. He breaks a cultural barrier, an ethnic barrier, an economic barrier, a gender barrier to extend to this woman by a well in John 4, living water. And this is what he says in John 4. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus sees this woman looking for joy and satisfaction and other worldly pleasures, and he invites her to drink from a different well. So my question is, what about you? Place yourself in the story. Imagine that you were standing on the steps of the temple that day when Jesus stood up and proclaimed this truth. Imagine that you are sitting by the well with Jesus And he challenges you. What is he going to say to you? Where do you run for your satisfaction? What well do you drink from for your thirst? Perhaps, like many people in our country, you are pursuing a career. Because you think that if you sacrifice now, in your younger years, that it will pay dividends later in life. And so you sacrifice your family on the altar of career or progress. Perhaps you're always looking for a bigger or better home or a nicer car or a new toy, thinking that if I could just get that one thing, it might finally bring the satisfaction I am looking for. Perhaps you're contemplating cheating on your spouse because you think somehow in some distorted, dark way that that will ultimately bring you satisfaction. Perhaps the place you are looking for satisfaction is your spouse and you place so much pressure on them for your every need to be something that they weren't designed to be in your life. I don't know what it might be for you. This hedonistic pursuit could look any number of different ways, but I do know, I do know that every single one of us is guilty of drinking from the wrong well. And I do know that it is not a new temptation for God's people. God's people have been drinking from the wrong wells for years. This is in Jeremiah chapter two. Jeremiah two, verse 13 says this, for my people have done two evil things, They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. And yet, time and time again, person after person, eventually realizes that those things don't satisfy. It reminds me of the old hymn. that goes like this. I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but oh, the water failed. Even as I stopped to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. Here's what I hope you realize, friends. That longing, that thirst for more is never going to go away by indulging in something from the world. Our thirst, our longing is ultimately a longing and a thirst that can only be fulfilled by God. So brothers and sisters, may we heed the words of God in Isaiah 55.1 when he says to us, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He alone can satisfy and save your thirsty soul. So all who are thirsty, The invitation is there, come and drink. Second invitation is this, join and participate. So come and drink, join and participate. The living water is not something you just consume that terminates on you, but it is something that is intended to flow through you to the world. You see, Jesus was the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision, but then Jesus says this living water will somehow not only flow to us, but it will flow through us to others. And remember, John is very quick to remind us that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, which at this point in the story had not yet been poured out on God's people. But it wouldn't be long. Just a few months after Jesus said this, at another festival, the Jews called Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. Let me show you this in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's so much here that we could get lost in, especially if you're new to the Bible, but don't get distracted here. Please pay attention to the point. It's at this moment that the Holy Spirit is poured out onto God's people. This is the moment Jesus spoke of. And in just a few verses in Acts 2, it's described as a pouring out like water. Look at this in Acts 2, 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So from this moment forward, the living water Jesus spoke of flows from him to us and through us into the world. Pastor Tyler Staten describes it like this, the river of living water has been poured out, come and drink. But oh, you don't need to come to the temple to drink. The life of God is now available to be pressed down into every individual human life so that you can become a living well filled to the brim, overflowing so that the waters spill over the banks of your life to bring healing to the world around you. You see, everything the river was in Ezekiel's vision and everything Jesus was on the earth, the church from this point forward becomes in the world. The church spills out of Jerusalem to feed the hungry. The church welcomed the sinner and the prostitute at their table. The church healed the sick. The church showed compassion and hospitality to children and strangers. The church cared for the poor. The church spilled out into the world, overcoming dead places with transforming life. And what began as a small trickle, what began very small, eventually leads to the greatest movement the world has ever seen. Let me explain it like this. In Central Oregon, there's a river called the Metolius River. It's 28 miles long. It flows through the Deschutes National Forest before eventually dumping into Lake Billy Chinook. It's crystal clear, full of salmon and trout. It is a true thing of beauty. If you have not been, you should go. In 1988, it was even designated by Congress as a National Wild and Scenic River. But one of the most fascinating things about the river is it is not fed by the ocean like a tidal creek, and it's not even fed by snowmelt from Mount Hood. Rather, it is fed by a small natural spring deep in the Deschutes Forest just outside of Sisters. You can walk to the spring. Several years ago, my family and I went to the headwaters of the Metolius River, and we hiked in. Honestly, I was expecting it to just be this really incredible site, maybe a waterfall or some like water just like sprouting up out of the ground. But instead, what I found was a small very unimpressive pond in the middle of the forest. It wasn't majestic. We didn't even take a picture of it. It was pretty depressing. But what began as a small trickle eventually leads to one of the most beautiful rivers in the world. And the same is true of the church and this gospel message we proclaim. It began small, nothing to take a picture of, Nothing to write home about, but then it grew and it grew and it grew. And as you read throughout the book of Acts, you see this river spread and gain momentum starting in Jerusalem and then spreading out to Judea and Samaria. And then by the end of the book of Acts, we see this gospel just spreading all over the world. The book of Acts ends in the year 64 AD, but this river that began here was poured out to his disciples and then threw his disciples into the world. So let me read you just a few dates, and I want you to notice the spread of the gospel worldwide. In 100 AD, Christians are reported in Sri Lanka and Algeria. In 174, the first Christians are reported in Austria. In 200, first Christians are reported in Belgium and Switzerland. By 432, Patrick goes to Ireland to preach the gospel there. In 500, the first Christians are reported in Yemen. In 650, the first church in the Netherlands is planted. In 740, Irish missionaries reach Iceland and begin to preach the gospel. In 828, the first missionaries reach what is now known as the Czech Republic. In 1382, the Bible is translated into English from Latin. In 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. In 1533, the first Christian missionaries arrive in what is now Vietnam, in 1541, the Franciscans arrive in California and began teaching people there about Jesus. In 1697, the first permanent mission outreach is established in Southern California. In 1853, a Methodist church is planted in Downeyville, California. In 1994, the Chan family, along with several others, planted Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley, California. In April 2008, Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley sent several families up to Tigard, Oregon to plant Colossae Church. And then on February 8th, 2015, Colossae Church sent about 30 of us to Hillsboro, Oregon to plant what would become Table Community Church. And this is the story we are caught up in. It goes all the way back to those first disciples. My question is, are we going to join and participate in this mission of seeing the gospel advance? Because it doesn't end here. It just keeps going beyond us. And I love the invitation in Ezekiel's vision. Did you notice? It's to come and swim in the river, not to just dip your toes in the water, not to wade in ankle deep, but to swim, to fully immerse yourself in the mission of God. Our youngest daughter, Willa, is fearless of water. She always has been from a very young age. If you get her near a body of water, she is jumping in. It doesn't matter if someone's on the other end to catch her. She is jumping into the water. If we would go to Cannon Beach and put her down in the sand, just like a moth to a flame, she would just run at the Pacific Ocean, which is terrifying. But on the other hand, I love the childlike faith it requires to just run at the Pacific Ocean without fear. (laughs) What would it look like for us to swim in this ocean of grace and mission with childlike abandon? to just cannonball into the river that Ezekiel described, to give ourselves fully to this vision. It could look any number of ways in this church. I'll give you one example. A couple of years ago, there's a couple in our church. uh, They're in here in this gathering right now, John and Rachel. And they asked me to grab lunch. And I uh, grabbed lunch with them. And they started to tell me how they felt like maybe God was stirring their heart towards adoption and towards foster care. And so we talked about it, what it might look like for them to step into this type of life, and I suggested Safe Families, which is a ministry that we partner with here at the church. And this type of lunch, you need to know this, like it's not abnormal for me. Um, because Katie and I have adopted and because we've uh, fostered a number of kids, uh, people, well-intentioned people come to us and will like, ask questions. What was your experience like? My wife and I are thinking about adopting or fostering. So these kind of conversations are pretty normal for me. But rarely, after those conversations, do we see people follow through and actually do the thing. Um, Usually they're just kind of gathering information. And so I left that lunch that day encouraged, but honestly, I wasn't very hopeful. Not because of this couple, but because of my own cynicism surrounding the amount of people who say they want to do something, but don't actually do it. But here's what's fascinating. This couple actually did something about it. I mean, just a few days later, I received a reference request from safe families. They had already applied to become a safe family. They've stepped into foster care. They've recently had a four-year-old girl placed with them. And so each Sunday morning for the past couple of months, I've stood out front, I did it this morning, and just watched them walk in holding her hand, overwhelmed with gratitude for the way they have stepped into the mission of God. And that is one example. And listen, maybe it's not foster care for your family. Maybe, maybe God is calling you to be more generous with your money or to go to Gonsabra or to volunteer with the family room or to just be kind to your neighbor. But listen, imagine if you just did one Jesus-y thing this week. Just one. It can be any of the things I mentioned or just something else entirely. You did one thing. Then multiply that by the four or 500 people that call TCC home. And then multiply that by the estimated 2 billion followers of Jesus worldwide. Imagine if each of us responded every day to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, acts of kindness, deeds of justice, truths of the gospel proclaimed. What might it look like? Well, I think it would look a lot like Ezekiel's vision of a river teeming with life, pouring into the Dead Sea. I think it would look like dry lands refreshed and weary souls rejoicing at the good news of the gospel. Friends, please don't stand on the sidelines of Christianity. Roll up your sleeves. Get involved. Be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. Be irrationally generous with your money and your time. Care for your neighbor. Do acts of justice and mercy every single day. That is the invitation that has been extended to you, to join and participate. Third invitation is this look and hope, look and hope. I began this sermon with a long and depressing quote about how the world and humanity is just spiraling into despair and hopelessness, about how humanity just keeps getting worse and worse, and the world's outlook keeps getting more and more bleak. But let me be absolutely clear, in case I wasn't earlier, that is not how the biblical story of humanity ends. It does not end with humanity just turning inward and destroying the world as we know it. It ends with a loving, good God restoring and redeeming all of creation. Earlier, I mentioned that the Bible begins and ends with this river image. And I showed you where this image began in Genesis, but I didn't show you how it ended. So let me show you how this story ends in Revelation 22. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree, listen to this, were for the healing of the nations. Does that sound familiar? It's Ezekiel's river, it's Jesus's river, it's the river that he said would flow from him to us and through us to the world. And then skip down to verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come, And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isn't that good? Here's why this matters, friends. Because even on our best days, even on the days when we find satisfaction in Jesus, even when we are filled to the brim and overflowing with the Spirit's love, even when we are fully engaged in the mission of God, even then... The world is a dark and painful place, isn't it? Like you, don't, you don't have to look around much to see the pain and the brokenness all around us. All around us, every single day, there are wars, terrorist attacks, genocides, abuse, poverty, hunger, human trafficking, child slavery, natural disasters, and curable disease, and the list goes on and on and on. But, but it's not just the pain out there that we have to deal with. Because let's be honest, the pain out there we can deal with. We can deal with that pain by just turning off the news or going for a run or pouring a stiff drink. It's the pain that's near us, the pain that is in our own homes, the pain that is in our heart. That's the pain we have to deal with daily. It's the young couple who desperately wants to have a child, but no matter how much money they spend or how many doctors they visit, infertility seems to be winning the day. It's the couple in their 60s who now find themselves taking care of their aging parents And they never imagined that they would have to care for their parents the way their parents cared for them when they were a baby. It's for the parents who are wrestling with what it means to parent adult children. And it's so painful because you feel like you did everything right. You prayed for them every night. You took them to church. You got them involved in youth group. You gave them a Christ-centered education. And when they became adult, they walked away from the faith. And they are making decisions that are going to hurt them for the rest of their life life. It's for the man who is so deep in sexual sin and addiction that he can't see a way out and he is just given into the despair that he is going to have to live a double life until the day that he dies. It's for the teenage girl that feels trapped in her own body wondering if maybe God made a mistake and fearful to tell anyone in the church about her struggle because she doesn't know how the church is going to respond. It's for the woman in her 30s who really wants to love Jesus and wants to love the church, but it feels impossible because she was abused by her spiritual leaders growing up. The very people who were supposed to protect her were the ones who took her innocence. It's for the husband who's caring for his wife as she battles an incurable disease. And each day he cares for her, and each day she loses that twinkle she had in her eye as she takes one step closer to death. We could go on and on and on. It's that type of pain. That is hard to process and comprehend. But brothers and sisters, no matter how painful and dark our days on earth become, here's what the Bible tells us. We need not despair. We don't despair. So what do we do in those moments? What do we do in those difficult, dark seasons? We accept Jesus' invitation to look and to hope to look ahead to that future day that Revelation speaks of where Ezekiel's vision is fully and finally realized and have deep, lasting biblical hope. And I say biblical hope for a reason, because we do not hope like the world hopes. Biblical hope is so much richer. Author David Wilkerson says it like this, biblical hope is not wishful thinking or an optimistic outlook. Rather, it is a confident expectation based on the certainty of God's word that as he has anchored us in the past, so he will in the future. That day is coming, friends, and you can bet your life on it. In just a moment, we will sing and take communion and worship together. And as we come to the tables of communion, we acknowledge that our thirst can only be quenched by Jesus So brother, sister, as you come to the table, may you come and drink. And we recognize that we are sent out as living water into the Dead Sea. So brother or sister, as you come to the table, may you join and participate in God's mission to the world. And we come to the table with our eyes set on the horizon, knowing that no matter how painful or difficult life may become, there is a day coming on the horizon when all will be made right. So, brother or sister, if you find yourself in a difficult season, as you come to the table, may you look out on that horizon and hope with biblical sustaining.